I invite you to turn to Genesis 32 this morning. Genesis 32. Uh, for some reason last night, uh, I got a little bit of a cough that came back. So um, I'm hoping and praying that doesn't affect too much here. I got water and I got a cough drop. I don't normally preach with a cough drop, but we'll see how it goes today. Um, so we're looking at Genesis chapter 32 this morning. And um, again, after the preaching, uh, in our final prayer, uh, after the preaching's done, we'll be uh, spending some time in reflection for the Lord's table. And so, if, again, if you don't have those elements, there'll be a moment uh, just after the preaching where you'll be able to go back and get those and then celebrate the Lord's table with us. We've been working our way through the book of Genesis, and we're in the middle of one of the longest stories, the Jacob story, in the book of Genesis. We've worked through the earlier parts of Jacob's story, and we even got to the place where in the middle of his stories, uh, this time with Laban ended. Um, God uh, spends time to protect Jacob uh, from Laban. And his story with Laban comes to an end in a miraculous way when God delivers Jacob from the wrath of his father-in-law, Laban. And so with Laban behind him in Genesis 31, heading back to his home, Jacob wakes up. And uh, the very, very next few days, he uh, engages with perhaps an even more difficult confrontation. We come to uh, what I view as the most essential or critical moment in the life of Jacob. The most challenging storm that he will ever face. And this will be the time when he faces his brother, his twin brother Esau. Laban behind, Esau in front of him. This is an example of the old phrase that we've used for uh, quite some time in our culture, uh, Jacob's between a rock and a hard place. I did a little bit of research on that phrase, just, just because I wanted to, and uh, saw that uh, that comes originally from Homer, uh, classical Greek, and his Odyssey. And uh, in that original piece, Homer is talking about his main character, and he has him sailing his vessel through a narrow pass between a deadly whirlpool on the one side and a monster on a rock on the other. Laban behind him, Esau before him, Jacob faces the greatest storm of his life. Have you ever experienced trauma after trauma, difficulty on difficulty, I want you to take a moment here as we start and just think about your life. Think about it for a brief moment. What are the most challenging moments that you've experienced in life? What are the most challenging moments? If you could, you know, you could just kind of jot it down in your mind. Most challenging moments. Some of you here today are in your 70s and 80s, and you can tell stories of intense challenges in your life. Perhaps you remember a year that was especially difficult where you buried loved ones or faced health crises or persecution for your faith in Jesus Christ. Some of you are young, yet you can still talk about storms in life, loss of loved ones, parents, brothers, sisters, criticism, slander, 
health challenges that you face. Perhaps though, there are still others here who haven't experienced many storms of life yet. Rest assured though, life brings storms. And so this morning, uh, I want to learn how God calls his children to navigate the storms of life from Jacob and what he does with his brother Esau. Our next two sermons in Genesis will deal with uh, this subject, Jacob facing Esau, in Genesis 32 and 33. The first part of the story in Genesis 32 is what we're going to look at today before we partake in the Lord's table, and then our next sermon several weeks down the road on Genesis. Um, We'll have other sermons before that, but our next sermon on Genesis will be the second part of the story. The first part of the story in Genesis 32 starts uh, with a reassuring encounter in verses 1 and 2. So look with me in your Bible at Genesis 32, verse 1. It says, Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of the place Mahanaim. The first two verses of Genesis 32 reveal the context for most of the two chapters where Jacob faces Esau. That is, they give the location where things are going to occur. And so for the most part, what happens in these two chapters happens in or just around this town by the Hebrew name of Mahanaim, transliterated into English. That word Mahanaim means two camps. I think it's likely called this because a group of angels meets Jacob there. You see that right in verse 1. A group of angels meet him there. And so this is not just where Jacob and his family is camping. This is where God's camp is. Where the angels are dwelling. And it seems that this angelic visitation is meant to assure or reassure Jacob. They're called a reassuring encounter. We don't know much about it. We don't know what the angels say. We don't know what they do. They're just there, and he recognizes this this is God's camp. It's a reassuring encounter. That leads to a frightening exchange. That's point two as you're working through the story. A frightening exchange in verses three through six. Not with the angels, but with Esau. Look at verse three. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them. Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my lord in order that I may find favor in your sight." And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he's coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. These verses describe Jacob's initial correspondence with his twin brother after having been away for 20 years. In this story, Jacob and his family are north of Esau. I, I think, in looking at maps, I think they're about at least 100 miles away from Esau. His route will not even go where Esau lives. Esau's way in the south, yet Jacob feels for some reason that it's important to notify his brother that he's coming back home. 
Now, there are two parts to this initial correspondence I want to point out to you from verses 3 through 6 I think are important. It's made up of these just two little, little sections. First, some of Jacob's servants let Esau know that Jacob's back in town. That's part one. And then part two, verse six, they report back to Jacob that Esau's on his way to meet him with 400 men. Now, it's interesting in verse six, that report back. This is all we know about their report back. I don't know if they said more or not. Esau's coming with 400 men. I don't know if he said more or not. This is what we have in Scripture. I would suggest that Jacob, I don't think, knows much more than we do, though. Because if if we're going to look at his response a little bit after this, it seems as if he begins to brace himself for a confrontation. He's assuming that these men are bent on punishing him instead of greeting him. I think that's how Jacob takes it. And while Jacob has a large party himself of wives and children, and I won't go through all the livestock, he's he's got got a large party himself, he, I don't believe, has anywhere near 400 men that will be able to help him against Esau. Esau's approaching, approaching troops then present Jacob with the greatest crisis he will ever experience in his life. That's the frightening exchange, verses three through six. That leads to number three, a careful response in verses 7 through 12. A careful response from Jacob. Look at verse 7. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking, if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, the God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant, for with only my staff I crossed the Jordan, and now I've become two camps. Please, Deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Here Jacob responds in a twofold way. He responds with actions and prayer. His action plan is simple. He divides his people into two camps so that one might escape if Esau overwhelms the other. No doubt in my mind, I I think he might put his wife and children in the, the camp that's farther away perhaps to insulate and protect them there. But that's his plan. It's a simple plan. Divide into two camps, maybe one of them will get away. The greater part of Jacob's response, though, is prayer. Prayer. And we'd say this in studying Jacob's life. It's about time. It's about time. Prayer. Jacob's prayer in verses 9 through 12 is commendable. I see it as one of the most outstanding prayers in the Old Testament. It's the longest prayer in the book of Genesis. And there's several things, although, you know, this is a narrative, so I kind of want to keep working through the narrative to make the point of the big section, but I do want to point out a few things about his prayer that I think are commendable to us. 
First, uh, his prayer begins with an appeal to God alone in verse 9. Goes to the praise to the God of my father Abram, God of my father Isaac, and he says, O Yahweh, O Lord. He knows that there's only one true God, and that's the that's who he appeals to. But then second, verse 10, his prayer includes humble confession. Look again at verse 10. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. In this tender moment of worship, Jacob admits that he is completely undeserving of all of God's love and faithfulness to him. And here his language in the original is emphatic. And you can get it when you're reading the English here. I am not worthy of the least of all these blessings. This means that Jacob sees himself as little or small. He knows that he's nothing more than the one who deceived his blind father to get what he wanted. He he knows knows he's nothing more than the one who took advantage of the weakness of his twin brother to get his birthright and blessing. He, He knows he's not worthy of the very least of God's mercies and faithfulness to him. Before we go any farther in this prayer, I just say that's a good posture for us as well. It's a good posture for us. None of us are worthy of God's love and faithfulness either. Our hearts should readily and regularly remind God of these things in prayer. I love this part of the prayer. I am not worthy of the least of all these things. His prayer includes humble confession. That leads to request and transparency in verse 11. He makes his request known. Verse 11, he asks God to deliver him, his wives, and his children because, he says, I'm afraid of Esau. His camp is no match for Esau's. He knows it. He needs God's help. So he makes his request very clear and pours it out to God. That's a good part of our prayer as well. And then finally, in verse 12, The way I'd summarize verse 12 is he claims the promises of God. Jacob reminds God of what God had promised him. God said that he would do good to Jacob and multiply his offspring. And I would suggest that we should do the same in prayer as well. We should and can remind God of his covenant promises to those who follow Jesus Christ. We would do well to respond to the storms of life in the same way as Jacob here. To pray to God through humble appeal and confession of sin, transparency and belief in his promises. Now personally, I'll just tell you, there's one other reason I like this prayer, verses 9 through 12, and uh, maybe it's a selfish reason. I don't know if I should admit selfishness in the pulpit, but... I love the prayer verses 9 through 12 because it's a one-sided prayer. Okay, by that I mean you have Jacob pouring out his heart to God, and you don't have a response, you don't have a record of God's verbal response to him. And the reason I like that is because Jacob's just like us. There are moments and times in our Christian life where we pour out our heart to God, We ask him to intervene. We admit sin. We confess that we're fearful. 
And then you know what we have to do? Wait. Wait for God to do. That's what Jacob does. He prays, and then he's going to wait on God. He doesn't have an answer yet. And so this is his response. That brings us to the last movement of chapter 32, which is the second half of the chapter. And this last movement I call a restless evening. We've seen a reassuring encounter, a frightening exchange, a careful response, and now a restless evening. We can see that these final moments of the chapter all happen on the same night by comparing verse 13 and verse 22. So I want you to look at your scripture and make sure what I'm saying is right here. It's all, all the events from verses 13 through the end of the chapter occur in one night. This is in verse 13. So he stayed there that night. Uh, if you look at verse 21, so the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camps. So it's still the same night. And then look at verse 22, the same night. So the events of the second half of this chapter all occur in one night. Okay, and that's important to know, the same night. But what I'd also add, and what you need to read ahead to the next chapter to find out is, these are not all events that are occurring just on one night, but this is a very important night. This is the last night that he has before he meets Esau. Look at chapter 33, verse 1, next chapter. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming. Okay, so this restless night that we're going to look at in just a moment, is the last night before he sees Esau. Which, by the way, I'm a little leery of preaching on different subjects in the Bible because I find sometimes that God will have me go through similar experiences before I preach. And so when I came up with this title, A Restless Night, I was already thinking, man, Saturday night's not going to be good. (laughs) Okay, and I can testify, you know, I can testify uh, that... uh, you know, just with the sickness I have, a little bit, and uh, no sleep. I got very little sleep last night, which is pretty evident in the sermon. I will say, though, there was no wrestling with God that I'm aware of. Okay, and we're going to see that that's what he does here. I divide the events of the last evening up into three parts. It starts with a long description of the gift that Jacob sends on ahead in an effort to appease his brother Esau. Look with me at verse 13 through 21. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present. It's a key word in this section. He took a present for his brother Esau. 200 female goats and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. Then he handed over to his servants every drove by itself and said to his servants, Pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, when, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my Lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves, You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him, and you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, Jacob thought this, I may appease him with the present. 
that goes ahead of me. And afterward I shall see his face, perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. So this section is about the present, or the gift that he gives. In these verses, Jacob puts gifts between him and Esau. That's how I'd say it. The word gifts is translated uh, here with the word present, uh, and you find it four times in this part of the story. What's interesting about this word is it's the normal Hebrew word for offering or sacrifice. It's the minha, if you know Hebrew. Normal word for offering. He's sending four types of offerings before or types of offerings to his brother in order to, the text says, appease him. To appease him. The total number of animals here, do all the math, is 550 animals. Did any of you figure that out already? Okay. Last night I had people talk to me about my math equation or last week that I shared with you, so I know some of you do that kind of thing. 550. A massive exchange of wealth here. Two significant things stick out to me as I read through this part of the text I just want to share with you. First, the reason Jacob sends out so much is found in the middle of verse 20. It says, for he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. That is, he uses language of atoning for sin with his brother. But secondly, the last thing I think Jacob wants to face is Esau. You notice he keeps putting someone or something ahead of him uh, along the way. Jacob is always behind someone or somebody in this text. You know, a real man, right? <laughs> Jacob's probably not the last person, though, to think that he might offer some gift to smooth things over with an offended relative. That's the gift. He keeps sending drove after drove of presents, animals before him. So that hopefully by the time, you know, it's one gift, okay, this Jacob guy's not too bad, but I still want to kill him. Second drove, uh, he's starting to win me over. Third drove, fourth, made by then, okay, can't wait to see him. He's a good guy. After the gift, Jacob arranges uh, what I call the, the crossing in verses 22 and 23. Look at verse 22. That same night, he arose and took two, his two wives, his two female servants, his 11 children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok, or the Jabbok River. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. Now, to be honest with you, I find verses 22 and 23, they seem to be very simple, but I find them kind of difficult. Took me all week to try to figure this out, and I'm not even certain exactly what his intent with this is. When I first read it, I thought he's trying to put the Jordan or the Jabbok River between. Okay, so as I'm reading this, you know, okay, so last thing I'm gonna do is, you know, Jacob's coming tomorrow. I'm just gonna put my family on the other side of the river, so then he'll have to like go over there. But I don't think that's the best way to read it, actually. Because the next thing that happens, uh, the very next day, he's with his family when he meets them. And so instead, I think he's simply trying to continue his journey closer to the promised land with his family. He may be trying to discourage Esau from following him, but this river is not much to navigate. And so I don't think that's the case. I think he's just continuing on. 
this last moment. I'm going to get even closer to the promised land. Regardless when he's crossing in the night, something happens so that he's all alone. Okay, he's like left on one side of the river for the whole evening without his family, his wife and wives and children. And that time alone is what Moses describes in the amazing scene at the end of this restless evening. In, uh, I, so I call this the wrestling, verses 24 through 32. And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. He said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the, na- the, the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the place of Israel, uh, therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of his thigh. So this part of the story is, uh, stands on its own as something that's very fascinating to biblical interpreters for, well, since the beginning. Several developments within the story, I think, add to its intrigue. And uh, for me, the way I want to work through this with just a few minutes is I just want to answer four questions I think you need to understand if you're going to figure out what's going on here with Jacob and this unknown man wrestling all night. So here are the four questions. First, With whom is Jacob actually wrestling? That's an intriguing question, isn't it? With whom is he really wrestling? And what the Bible gives here, the biblical evidence, is a little challenging, although I think we can figure it out. Uh, In verses 24 and 25, the being that he's wrestling is called a man. That is the normal Hebrew word for a male human being. Okay? Now, this man actually refuses to identify himself by name in the dark evening. And so if this is all we had, we would still be left to our imagination to try to figure out who this man is. Is this Esau? Did he like come by himself? Is this some scout of Esau he's wrestling with all night? It's a man. Okay. However, later on in the story, in verse 30, Jacob says that he has seen him face to face. I've seen God face to face and have survived. And so this might be an incarnate appearance of God, God taking on human form to interact with Jacob. This would be a theophany, an appearance of God in some way or another. But there's one other biblical text that sheds light on this, and uh, just for sake of time, you don't need to turn there, but you could write down the reference or consider it. It's Hebrews, tw- or I'm sorry, Hosea 12, verses 2 through 4, and I am going to read it to you. Hosea 12, verses 2 through 4. The prophet Hosea is condemning Judah 
in Jerusalem at this point in his book, and he says this in verse 2, the Lord has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay Jacob according to his deeds. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel. Is that the right guy? Yeah, we're talking about the right guy. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel, and in his manhood, he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. Great. Just when we're, you know, we're just figuring it out, right? It's a man. No, it's God. Now we have a third choice. It's an angel. So the question is, which one is it? And I think the best explanation, the most satisfying answer is that Jacob wrestles with the angel of God, a pre-incarnate appearance of the Son of God. Since this is a Christophany, pre-incarnate appearance of the Son of God. The word angel then is used to describe the Son as God's messenger in this case. But that leads to another intriguing question. All right, that's why I dealt with that question first, because like, okay, we're, we're soon to admit, okay, yeah, I think it could be Jesus, the Son of God, but the next question is hard. Second question, how can Jacob prevail against the Son of God? Pastor Brent, have you ever heard of like omnipotence before? You're telling me this little Jewish man wrestles with the Son of God and prevails? What's going on there? The Bible says that Jacob was able not only to strive with, which could be translated contend with or persist against the Son of God, he actually is able to prevail. That's the English translation of the Hebrew word that's here, and I think it's a good translation. But believe me, I tried to translate a lot of different ways. He's able to prevail. The word prevail is used two times in this passage for emphasis. It suggests that Jacob was winning or had been victorious in this wrestling. But is that actually what's happening here? I mean, is there some other way to understand the word prevail? I'd say it's really hard to do that because just two chapters before this, in Genesis 30, the same word is used. Go to Genesis 30 and look at verse 8. Genesis 30 and verse 8. Remember why I titled the sermon on Genesis 30? Birth wars. And Rachel and Leah were duking it out to see who would be able to give sons to Jacob. In the middle of the birth war, in verse 8, Rachel says this, With mighty wrestlings, I've wrestled with my sister. So I didn't know there was so much about wrestling in Genesis. With mighty wrestlings, I've been wrestling with my sister and have prevailed. There Rachel is claiming to be victorious over her sister because her servant Billah had given two sons to her to Jacob. And so I take that same translation, that same word here. So Moses indeed tells us that Jacob was winning or has been victorious against God's messenger. But how is that possible? How can Jacob be winning against the Son of God? And I'll give you my best answer. My best answer is the Bible doesn't really tell us. 
We do know, of course, that Jacob was a strong man. He, he did what it took several other shepherds to do. In the earlier passage, roll a stone away. He can perform this by himself. He's strong. He's also self-preserving and stubborn. It's amazing what a strong, stubborn, and self-preserving man can accomplish. Yet I'll add one or two other thoughts to this. When God takes on human flesh in the new covenant, thousands of years later, he does so in the Son, Jesus Christ. And we must remember that in that time, Jesus took on him all of the limitations of a human being. Jesus was subjected to human pain, to agony, and even to death as the Son of God. That is, Jesus voluntarily subjected himself to these things on the cross and before, and he willingly allowed himself to be broken, suffer, and die for our sins. And so if this is pre-incarnate Jesus and Son of God, and he loses in this wrestling match, that may be just a testimony of the fact that he is human. If this man in Jacob's stories is an incarnate appearance of the Son of God, then the Son submits himself to human form with all its limitations and weaknesses so that Jacob might prevail. I might add one other thought here, and that is if you were, if you were listening when I went through that Hosea text, Hosea interpreted what the prevailing was. Okay, so I'll, I'll just read that text to you just a little bit again. Hosea said, he strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. The way he prevailed was not through human strength and wrestling. The way he prevailed was through weeping and praying and clinging to God. So Jacob prevails for most of the night. But that leads to a third important question we need to answer if we're going to understand this text, and that is, what is the significance of changing Jacob's name in this passage? Jacob wants to know the name of his attacker, but God's messenger won't tell him. But in this story, uh, Jacob's name is changed from Jacob. Well, he's, he's forced to acknowledge his name, and then his name is changed. Now, I agree with most of the interpreters here and what's going on. I think that the reason he's forced to identify himself by name, I mean, this messenger knows who Jacob is. The reason he's forced to say his name is because of the meaning of that name. He wants Jacob to be transparent about his own nature. The name Jacob means deceiver, heel grabber. So this messenger wants Jacob to admit that he's a deceiver. And that's the whole reason why he's in this situation with Esau. He ripped Esau off on two occasions, and God wants him to confess his guilt by saying his name. What's your name? Jacob, deceiver. His name is changed to Israel, which means something like God rules or God heals. The key emphasis here is on the word God. Instead of being a schemer and a deceiving person, he is now one whom God will act for. This leads to one final question to understand this text, and that is why did God injure Jacob? And I've spent a lot of time thinking about that this week too, and I want to present something to you that I think is what's going on here. You might not agree with it, 
And if you don't, that's fine. Okay. But why does God injure him? Well, the angel wants to get away from him because it's day. Day is breaking. And it may be, as some of the commentators state, that this is a, an act of mercy because if he sees face-to-face God, he's going to die. Maybe it was the dark of the night veiled his appearance. He doesn't know he's wrestling with for hours. So that may be the case, but I think perhaps even you know, a deeper point of this injuring Jacob is to show him that he needs to He needs to rely on God's provision. In just a few moments, Jacob will face the most difficult moment in his life. A face-to-face encounter with an offended brother and 400 men. So God takes away Jacob's self-reliance. Strong Jacob now halts on an injured hip. No source of physical strength or deliverance remains for him. He's completely vulnerable, limping, and tired on the most challenging day of his life. And that, men and women, is the first part of this story. We're going to read the rest of the story and see what happens later. Kind of like that old, you know, for the rest of the story, tune in next time. You can read ahead as well. But what will happen to this tired, limping shell of a man? Will he make it? In the meanwhile, though, before we consider that, I want to close this sermon by saying this. We need to know that this humbling and crippling is sometimes how God works with his children. This is sometimes how God works with his children when they go through challenges. Strips away every layer of human strength. So that all you can do is cling. (laughs) I'm going to prevail by clinging to you, God, in prayer. He wants us to admit with Martin Luther, did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Thus asks who that may be. Christ Jesus. It is he. Lord Sabaoth. His name. From age to age, the same. And he must win the battle. Before our most challenging moments in life, God often strips us of all of our human pride and strength 
to show us how much we need him. God wants us to know that he's our mighty fortress. We are too prone to downplay that, men and women. We too quickly rely on human strength and human gifts, and we don't consider God and his camp of angelic beings who are here to protect us. We too, like Jacob, plan and scheme instead of pray, pray, and submit. And so will you in this moment, this morning, plan and scheme to protect yourself or pray and wait for God to deliver? Jacob teaches us to abandon planning and scheming for praying and weeping and waiting.